Go ahead. No, no, no. Sorry. I was listening. Maybe I was breathing too hard. Okay. Just how into it I was. Yeah, that was golden. I love I it. I like simplicity and I like it to be very couples. clean. All acted very simple. The matching couples. Oh my lord, I hate the matching couples. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I think I'm attracted to normal looking women. Right, but that's not accurate. You have weird taste. Those are all things that most of us could really improve on. It's gonna, it's gonna vary wildly if anyone listens at all. That's what I call interesting. No real substance? That's super interesting. Fascinating almost. Welcome to While We're on the Subject, where we talk about what we talk about. Now, here's the show. Hi, Mike. Hey, John. What's on your mind this week? So, we have this future topic list. And on it, John had this very particular topic that we could discuss every now and again, which is the generalization. Gener- generalization? How do you even say that? Generalization. Ah, okay. Typo. Generalization of words. And I saw some words he put, and I was like, oh, how fascinating. And it made me think of the word pandemonium. Mm. Generally, you think of it as like, wild and crazy and confusion and disorder all over the place but it, it originated from this piece of fiction known as paradise La- <laughs> known as paradise lost <laughs> by john yeah. milton have you read that some of it okay i've never gotten to yeah in the story angels fall from heaven and they descend into what becomes hell they build a capital city known as pandemonium it takes like an hour to build or something I don't know. I don't, a short amount of time. But it's pretty quick. The point is, it's like super epic capital. That's where all the demons live. And it's like grander than anything humans have ever built. It's epic. And I just think it's, it's kind of interesting because I guess originally the word means something like all demons or all of the demons. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah Pan is like all and demoni. Yeah. Um, or demonio or yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure. And I just like how... At some point, somebody saw this word and this piece of fiction, and they're like, sounds like chaos. All the demons, pure disorder. And it's funny, because in Paradise Lost, you know, all the, like, demons are very specifically categorized, and they have sure, yeah. ranks and titles, and there's, like, a king and a duke, and all this very orderly nonsense to these levels of <laughs> demons. Yeah, and the meaning just kind of drifted over time. Yeah, and it just turned into this whole uproar and confusion nonsense and i just find it fascinating to see a word which you know i can see why somebody would be like oh demons everywhere that's chaos yeah sure it's not even just chaos i I feel like pandemonium encompasses like excitement and craziness you know what i mean like like this energy Mm mm-hmm yeah, but you're right. I mean, with so many words, so many words kind of gradually expand and take over new meaning. Like so many words have their origin back at somebody's name or the uh, name of a place yeah. or, you know, something that somebody coined. Which yeah. is, you know, I don't know. I don't think that's the thing people think about very often. They'll like hear a word True. or see a word and it'll just to them always be a word. Like pandemonium up until I was like 16 was just a word that only existed as a word. I... Until this very moment, completely thought it was just some Greek word because pan is boom you know, Greek prefix. I dropped some knowledge um, on John. Everybody was know, there right? to witness it. Oh, <laughs> you're embodying my role today. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, and it's always something that I feel like I have to tell people when they start complaining about people's slang or people like coining new words uh-huh. and things. And I'm just like, look, that's how language develops and grows and improves it's kind of like economics right where you have a whole bunch of businesses Uh and some businesses fail and nobody like with words nobody uses it anymore it dies out some are extremely successful and they get used all the time and the gradual change is what keeps the language alive and keeps things moving and keeps things getting better yeah that's true are there any words like that that you think about and hold on to? If you ever hear it, you immediately go, ah, it reminds me of what it actually came from, its origin, that place or person or thing. Well, sandwich is, I think, a classic one that classic. always gets me uh-huh. because, you know, it's from the Earl of Sandwich or what have you. Right. And he liked to eat lunch with meat between two pieces of bread. Um, and so, you know, that's a classic. But... Bedlam is definitely the one. I mean, it's the one you have here on the list. And it's obviously one that I do think about as well. And, you know, it's not a super common word. But I think that most of these sorts of coined type words Uh are going to be less common. It's not going to be 
she. Right. You know what I mean? Like that. <laughs> that those kind of core uh, grammatical right. words are are going to be more enduring by their nature. Mm -hmm. But bedlam originally was the name of this like enormous insane asylum in England. I think it was close to London. I think it was I think it was in London. Uh -huh. But just the craziness of everything that happened there because everyone was crazy and the staff was crazy and harsh to the uh to the uh people patients. Yes, that's the one. The patients. <laughs> Although I think it was more like a prison than like a place of patients. But prisoners. Um, Aha, yeah, that's what yeah. You get for being crazy, and you can just imagine that in a society like 200 years ago, like so many more people would have had like lead poisoning, so many more people would have had a whole lot of weird mental diseases yeah. that we've kind of worked on eliminating by feeding people well and uh -huh. avoiding poisons. Ooh, and people were super experimental then too. They're like, let's see what happens if we do things to people. Yeah, that's that's very true. I mean, I read this whole story about how people used to think lead was this great flavoring agent and wow. used to eat, like, and do do all sorts of stuff with it, use it as medicine. And, yeah, it like you know, this was hundreds of years ago. People were crazy. Right. All the lead, I could understand. It does look like a kind of cool metal yeah. uh, if you don't know that it's going to kill you. But people that don't appreciate the fact that those sorts of things are valuable, it's a sad thing because... Like, English wouldn't exist without the mixing of different languages. And, you know, when French came to the UK yeah. and brought all of its words with it, there were so many more words that were so much more sophisticated coming in French than the local language. It was a more advanced civilization. You got to allow that progress. You got to allow it to absorb all of the goodness that is these concepts that they didn't have, you know? True that. Yeah. But now I can't stop thinking of this place. With the crazy staff and crazy prisoner patients. It just reminds me of, like, all these horror movies I watched as a child. I don't know if you know this, John, but... Yeah. I watched a lot of horror movies as a kid. My mom, for whatever reason, was totally into horror movies, and she thought it was okay for a seven-year-old to watch huh. them all. No wonder you're so weird. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, yeah. You're welcome. You're welcome. And so, I don't know. I think I'm going to look into this, research it, get a little... Yeah, out of it. look it up. Yeah. Maybe we'll talk about it more yeah. another time. I don't know very much about it. Yeah, because this just sounds like House on Haunted Hill. Okay. It's this horror movie where these people stay in like a house for the night and they get paid money if they like stay until the sun rises or whatever, like a million dollars or something. I don't remember. Ooh. But the house turns out to be like super haunted. And I think all the, the people that get invited are like ancestors. I mean, ancestor descendants. There of, you go. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I know. Sorry. It makes those words up all the time. They're descendants of, like, the staff that tortured all the patients there. And so, like, the ghosts okay. of all the patients, like, start coming out and, like, yeah, we're going to kill you all in weird and devastating ways because your great-great-grandparents tortured us. Hmm. How do you feel about ghosts in movies being able to actually cause real harm? Hmm. Because I've always thought ghosts really shouldn't be able to interact with people. Like, maybe you can see them. Right. But they can't, like, stab you or drop something on you or anything like that. Right. I feel also strongly that they should not be able to touch you. I feel like if you're going to have a ghost okay. in your horror movie, it should definitely be, like, a you know psychological thriller sort of deal where they probably mess with you a lot and it's, like, freaky. Yeah. But you don't get murdered by the ghost yeah it's true like what's the point of having it be a ghost like just have it be a person or like a i don't know demon or something if you're gonna yeah have it actually kill people mm -hmm. but yes we're gonna look into this later and we'll talk about it more because it reminds me of my childhood so i know we've touched on the subject now and again mm. but i know you want to talk about the learning process for you specifically yes. and then sort of dig into me a little and find out how I learn things. And I know I'm mm -hmm. sure we've spoken about it, but I know you want to get more in depth. So drop the knowledge. How does John do his thing? <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, we have discussed, we've kind of talked around some of the core concepts of how we learn and how we remember and retain things. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I've talked about skill development. We've talked about various projects that we've been working on and things. But we've never gotten to that core of how these processes actually work and how to go about 
improving our outcomes uh -huh. when we're learning things. And so I just thought we should talk through some of the core components of that. So starting out, when you're born, you know nothing, right? Like that's, that's just kind of where it starts. And over the course of time, your memory gradually picks up things automatically. Right. But in order to remember things well and remember a lot more stuff, you need to essentially apply your mind. You need to think, uh -huh. Uh -huh. right? And there are a few aspects of this that I think are really valuable to think about as you're learning things as you go through life. Uh -huh. And the first is the fact that this knowledge that you're gaining and that you have to think about in order to retain well is fundamentally sticky in a certain way. I'm not sure if I've ever brought this concept up. What is the concept? It's the idea that if you learn something uh -huh. that is related to something you already know, you're more likely to remember the new thing. I can see how that could be possible. Yeah, like if I tell you Derek Jeter is a shortstop, but you don't know what a shortstop is and you don't know that that's a position in baseball, uh -huh. it's much harder for you to remember who Derek Jeter is. If you already know other shortstops and you already know baseball and you already know what that position would be, then when you hear Derek Jeter is a shortstop, then it suddenly it's like, oh, okay, you just fit him into this existing hierarchy of knowledge and you immediately relate him to things you're not going to forget, like what a shortstop right. is, right? Okay, makes sense. And this applies to everything. That's why in so much pedagogy, people focus on teaching, like when I was in Korea and when I was in China, people focus on teaching things that are just one step beyond what the student can do mm -hmm. because you want to obviously push them into new stuff. You want to help them learn, right. but you don't want to put it so far out there that they're not going to retain any of it. It has to be connected back and related to stuff that they already know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is the core thing that I kind of wanted to talk about because when you extend it out over time, this has an accelerating effect. Mm -hmm. And so it means that, like, let, let's just imagine... Close your eyes, everybody. <laughs> okay, yeah. Close your eyes. Imagine two people, right? Mm -hmm. One person is learning all the time and one person is just kind of going through life like a normal guy watching some sports playing some video games not really thinking about stuff just chilling right, right. now the guy that's learning all the time mm -hmm. because he's learning all the time the new stuff that he learns is continuously easier to retain because he learns more that is related to it mm -hmm. and retains more that is related to it okay so every day his capacity to learn increases not huge amount but right it does increase over time. The person that's not learning that much will increase at a much slower rate. Uh -huh. And because of the stickiness and the fact that familiarity with the subject and familiarity with information allows the acquisition of new information and the retention of new information, you get these enormous disparities that you see in society where some people you talk to, it seems like they've never thought about anything in their life. Uh -huh. And a lot of people haven't because they just don't really engage their mind very much. And sometimes you run into people and they know seemingly everything or at least they know something about everything right and that distinction like the, the distinction of the stickiness and the distinction of just how much time you put in every day to learning things right that exposure and that retention i think people underestimate the impact of that and how much some people do actually know compared to other people right so is this how you learn john you learn by constantly learning? Well, no, like, it, it's not about how I learn. When you start to understand these core concepts, uh -huh. it starts to be more tangible about things you can do to improve your learning, okay. right? And so this is more just about how the process works and how important it is to engage yourself early and often, right? Right. This sort of thing does impact how I go about learning things. For instance, another aspect of this uh -huh. is that in a given day right you can only really learn so much that makes sense and then you have to go to sleep and kind of encode all of that into long-term memory uh -huh. and this applies to skills that you're practicing this applies to like a subject that you're studying if you're trying to learn i don't know astronomy it, you're not going to be able to learn everything in one day even if you study everything at a certain point you stop learning you stop retaining stuff and then when you sleep it refreshes your mind, it kind of clears out all of that stuff, puts it into long-term memory, and then you can learn a whole bunch of other stuff. And so what that ends up meaning is that it's really valuable 
to study every day. Right. Because every day you're refreshed. It's not like you're refreshed once a week or something like that. Right. Every day you're refreshed. And so let's say you're in a course right. and you don't study for three months and then you study right at the end a whole bunch for like a week before the exam. Mm -hmm. Well, you've missed out on three months of cycles where you could have been encoding a whole bunch of stuff about that subject. And that should shape how you study. Right. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, that makes sense. And that's why, like, when I was studying Spanish so much, like, you know, put in 30 minutes a day. Yeah. Don't put in three hours one day and, you know, no time the next day. Right. Like, that's, that's just less valuable. Yeah. And he was making crazy progress, by the way. It was so impressive. Like, I remember the first time Thank he you. tried to have a conversation with me, it was rough, hard. Every other word I had to say, he had to kind of stop me. And then within, like, yeah. a few months, it was... Almost like I could have a real conversation with John. Yeah, it progressed somewhat. His perseverance thankfully. was impressive. Well, and I mean, it's just the consistency. Yeah. Like, as you said with the guy that learned guitar mm -hmm. last week or the week before, doing something every day and applying yourself, whether it's a skill or knowledge, like the impact over the course of six months is enormous. Right. No, yeah, I was thinking about him too as well. So it's just like, yeah, mm. every day. And the fact that he just picked it up and did what he did was mind-blowing to me yeah. yeah and this this is why like it's such a core part of my like kind of life philosophy to be trying to learn stuff all the time and like this is why huh. i read an hour a day this is why i do all of those sorts of things because every day is an opportunity to learn and when it's gone it's gone and you can't make up for it later right it's just gone i like that so better to put in two hours a day learning various things and then not worry about having to spend entire days doing things like that in the future at any point. Yeah. But you actually take classes. Like, how do you go about preparing? Um, and this is kind of like an arrogance okay. that I've had for since I can remember. But basically, okay. the short of it is the teacher lectures. I write it down, mm -hmm. and then I remember it. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, I don't really generally have a very long process. When I have a more difficult subject, like math, mm -hmm. I do spend like an hour, half an hour a day just doing the homework or practicing equations. Okay. And generally kind of looking at the parts and trying to understand like the most basic thing about it. Because mm -hmm. I realize that ultimately a lot of the things I was learning and, and am learning is it ultimately comes down to this like really basic step that's used often even as the equations become more complicated or right, questions sure. change even if there's there are only a few core components right, that you need to use right. in different combinations additionally yeah. there'll be extra steps and i'll just have to remember the extra right. step when the time comes but it's ultimately always back down to those basic components that they taught you in the beginning hmm. it took me way too long to figure out that it was basically just that it's just the beginning when and then as things get more complicated, just add the extra step. The extra step is just because of the extra complication, but you'll be fine. Right. Every extra step isn't that hard. Yeah. It's just in aggregate, it's hard to solve it consistently. Yeah. So I'll do that. Okay. Yeah. Back when I was in school, I was very similar. And I would say there is a certain arrogance to it. Yeah. I, I completely agree. Because, I mean, I didn't even take notes. I had this whole philosophy around not taking notes because I wanted to focus on the teacher. And I still believe in that quite a bit. Like, I would say... Wow. Focusing on what's going on in class rather than being distracted by trying to write everything is not a bad call. I guess some of us can just multitask and some of us can't. Yeah, I can't. Like, I can't write down all the notes and, like, think about... Like, I'm either focused on writing or I'm focused on thinking, and I can't do both. Ah, you know what I mean? All right, that makes sense. Yeah, like, I mean, if I'm writing things that I'm thinking, then I can and, do both because they're integrated. Yeah. But no, it's very easy for me to listen to the teacher and take notes and read whatever PowerPoint or lecture they have up. If they mm. have anything up, it's just kind of taking the information in in all the ways really yeah, helps sure. me absorb it. Yeah, and I, I know for a lot of people, writing it down is really helpful. My process for trying to retain the information is I go through a process of comparing whatever they put up there, whatever they say, to things I already know and like questioning everything that they say and trying to break it down and find problems in what they're saying. And so like it's a really kind of intensive thinking process while I'm listening. Mm -hmm. And I also I write really slowly and I find it distracting and so I'm, I'm not particularly good at that. But after class, I think I was 
arrogant and made poor decisions back during school because I didn't study particularly in the same way that you did. Like I generally remember things pretty well and I generally paid a lot of attention and always went to classes. So I knew most of the stuff. I was better than most of the students. And that was kind of the goal for me. I just wanted to be better Mm -hmm. than most of the students. Yeah. I think that's another thing too Yeah, that I have going on. It's just like while I'm there and we're having information and information is being, you know, disseminated among us yeah <laughs> sure. oh my god we thought of the same word that's uh, so great very nice <laughs> another thing that drives me is like remember this because it's going to be brought up and no one's going to remember and you're going to remember and when the time comes you're mm. just going to be like oh boom i remember that and also just fun fact because i remembered it and i looked it up later i also know this other thing that you didn't bring up because i'm better than everyone here so that's really that really is a show of uh yeah kind of prowess yeah i get okay i get a little excited i don't know why <laughs> like, you know, I'm not necessarily like competitive in a lot of things, but every time I'm in a class okay. setting, I'm always like, I got to be better than everyone. Like, I want to be better nice. than you. Yeah. I, be better than you. <laughs> I feel like intelligence is one of those things that people are just going to be naturally competitive about because it's really core. You know what I mean? Like, right. maybe you're not as strong as this other person because you don't work out very much. Right. But like everyone thinks, everyone learns things like that's necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is funny. But I, w- I will say looking back with everything that I've learned about how to learn things over the last four or five years, like if I knew all of that and applied it effectively during university, I would know dramatically more instead of just listening to a lecture, reading some of the stuff from my classes and essentially doing nothing else other than, you know, assignments. Right. I would read every day and really focus on learning everything in the course rather than just learning more than everybody else or enough to do well on the exam. Because those are really not even similar outcomes, right? If you know everything about what you're learning, the exam won't even be hard. Like the exam's basic, you know what I mean? Right. And really, even if you pass an exam, you don't really know the material that well. It hasn't been made core to your Mm -hmm. being in the way that you kind of want it to if you actually want to use it in the real world. Now, the difficult thing with a lot of like your classes, in my mind, is that a lot of classes for a lot of subjects, and even the stuff that I studied, most of the stuff that I learned, you kind of need to be familiar with. Mm -hmm. Because I studied international business, and we took classes on marketing, and took classes on finance, and took classes on accounting, and like all of those different kind of disciplines within business. And whatever kind of job or profession you're going into after the fact, you're not using most of that. Like you need to be familiar with it. Mm but you're not really using it in day-to-day life. And so developing that deeper expertise is not particularly useful. But there is one other kind of tip that I wanted to bring up for people about learning. It's something that I've been working on for a while, Mm -hmm. and I've gradually refined it because I get this complaint from a lot of people I know and talk to about the fact that they don't feel like they remember what they read very well. Mm. And I've always had really good reading comprehension, and I've always put it down to the fact that I was really, really bad at reading as a kid. Mm -hmm. And because I read so slowly, I never had a chance in any kind of time intensive environment to go back and check anything. So I gradually figured out how to just remember everything I read because I read, you know, at 30% the speed of everybody else. It's funny. I actually read slower to Mm. retain the information better. Yeah. A lot of people seem to do that. Yeah. I mean, I can read like at a normal speed and, remember things fine but if i want to remember everything about the book i'll read it as slowly as i need to yeah sure because there's times where i try to read really really fast and then i'll have to Mm. go back and reread like three of the pages because i was kind of buzzing through it i got nothing from it yeah i sometimes try to get myself to read faster and it's just very difficult for me Mm -hmm. uh i i don't really find that i'm able to change my speed much it's kind of There is my walking pace of reading, and that's it. But no, I know lots of people can skim and can read really slowly to concentrate and can read really fast. Like, a lot of people have variability with that. I just have never managed that. But I have figured out a number of things you can do to try to retain information better. Like, if you read it and understood it and can retain it for the rest of the day Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like if you don't forget it immediately because i know a lot of people will read a page 
And then they'll stop and they'll think, oh, what was this on that page? What did I just read? And like, they didn't even actually read it. Right. Like, they were thinking about other things and distracted. And I know that that can happen. Mm-hmm. But, like, if you actually remember it for more than a minute, <laughs> these techniques, I think, will be beneficial. And I've gradually implemented and developed them. And so the first thing is just the day after you read, mm-hmm. you have to think about what you read. Yeah. And there are various things I've tried with this, Mm -hmm. but the one that I generally stick to is every day, generally I'll like read a chapter at a time or what have you, or a couple chapters. And the next day before I start reading the book again, I will take down some notes of what the like three most important things during that portion of the book were, what the thing that surprised me most was, and something that I disagree with or something that I question Uh about what they talked about. And by writing those five things down, it walks me through thinking about everything that I came across in the book Uh during that chapter or what have you. And it, it really encodes things much deeper. And this goes back to that whole, when you sleep, you encode things in your long-term memory. There is, and we'll have to get into this much more at length (laughs) another time, but there is this thing called the forgetting curve, which is very similar or related to the uh, learning curve, right? Mm. Yes. And so the forgetting curve essentially declines quickly. So like imagine Mm. a line graph that starts at 100% Mm -hmm. and it declines quickly and then it kind of levels off, right? Right. And what this curve tracks is how long you remember information Mm -hmm. and how much you forget depending on how often you review and how long it has been since you review. Right. And so there's a whole lot of information around that. But one of the key things to note from all of the research around remembering things is that if you learn information the first time, just one time, right. you're going to forget 90% of it mm-hmm. within a month. Like you're going to forget a huge amount, right. even if it's related to a whole bunch of stuff you know. But if you review the next day, just one time the next day, you will retain double that. Mm -hmm. And so just having that one quick review as you're thinking about everything that you learned the previous day is hugely impactful. Mm -hmm. So I do this every day as I'm reading the book. And then at the end of the book, I make a mind map. Now, I've never liked mind maps. I find them useless in a lot of senses, Uh (laughs) I guess. But in this particular case, I found it useful. Like I've tried to use them for planning a lot and kind of idea generation. And they've worked poorly. But here it's really, really useful because you're just trying to connect things that you've learned. And it's an exercise that normally you don't have to go through because you have things connected up in your mind, or at least I don't normally need to go through. Uh But in this case, the point is to review the information, right? So you create a mind map of all of the ideas in the book. And, and like at the center of this mind map is like the title of the book or what have you, or the core concept, uh-huh. let's say. And then you have breaking off from that all of the different ideas. And creating this mind map forces you to order in your mind all of the ideas from the book. It forces you to think about all of the ideas from the book. Right. And now here, all, with all of this stuff, I'm talking about generally nonfiction. Right. Like if you're reading a novel, this seems less uh, useful, uh-huh. obviously. So it forces you to remember all of that stuff. And it forces you to think about it. And it forces you to put it in order and sequence in your mind. Uh-huh. And that process will allow you to remember books substantially better than if you just read it and move on. Right. And the last thing... Sorry, there's one more, okay. there's one more thing, which was actually the first thing I ever tried. Uh-huh. And that was, there, there are kind of two forms of this. So you either read a book with someone and discuss it with them as you're reading. So this is like a book club. Right. I find I like to do it with just one person. Uh-huh. And it's often hard to coordinate a lot of people to try to read the same book at the same time. So, you know, one person is easier. Uh-huh. But that could work. Or you could just read a book that someone else you know has read and talk to them about it as you're reading it. And this is useful because talking about a book and talking about it with someone else does all of the stuff that we were just describing with the mind map and does all the stuff with reviewing it the next day. But it has the additional benefit of having the other person share their perspective Uh and share how they thought about it and share how they perceived it. Because as you're reading something, Uh you're not really aware of the built-in assumptions that you're making Uh about what the author's talking about. And if anything is unclear, the other person will come to different conclusions. Right. 
And so having them share it and break down some of the ideas that you came to, some of the conclusions you came to, and going back and forth, that process will help you retain the information. I think probably even more than the mind map Uh and all of the other stuff that I talked about. Now that is harder, right? Like the other stuff you can do all the time. Right. Because whenever you read a book, you have time to, you know, review the book. Uh But talking to somebody who's read the book, one, you need somebody who's read the book that you know well. And then two, you need to get enough time with them periodically to discuss the book as you're going through it. Those two things are not always the easiest. But if you incorporate all of that sort of stuff, then you will come out of reading something knowing two, three, four times more than if you just read it and moved on. On your last point, it's funny. There's this thing that I have this habit of doing when I'm, you know, taking a class and I'm learning something and it's like a lot of information. Okay. Because I catch myself talking to people every day after I've taken the class, whether it's like my girlfriend sure. or a friend, just telling them what I learned. Yeah, yeah. Generally, they'll be like, oh, yeah, it's fascinating. But it helps me retain okay. so much of the information just talking about what yeah, I've learned. Yeah. Whether someone's engaged or cares about it or not really has no impact on whether I retain more information or not. I guess like learning it and then disseminating it to someone else really sticks mm. it into my brain. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people talk about teaching as being a really beneficial thing for really deepening your understanding of material. But you're right. Just that process of, like, scraping it back up. One of my friends used to describe it as your mind and your memory is this giant vat of soup. Like, think about a giant school soup thing. Does everyone have their eyes closed? (laughs) This enormous 50-gallon soup, right? And gradually everything kind of floats to the bottom right? and you have to stir it to stir things up. You have to stir it to get all of that stuff up in the soup um, so that you can be thinking about it all of the time so that you can actually access it. Cause it's so much harder to access information once it's settled down to the bottom, you want to keep it floating around. And that process of retaining something, that process of like scraping it off the bottom and stirring it up like that is extremely useful for retention. Yeah. It's funny. That's part of the reason why I think in theory, working within a group would help somebody learn, mm. you know, because you have like a group of individuals are in the same thing, trying to engage and being able to discuss it. I mean, generally, that's not yeah. what happens. You know, there'll be like one person yeah. trying to discuss it and four people being like, when's the class over, you know? <laughs> sure. Well, even if everyone's engaged, the purpose of group projects tends to be to create something not to learn or to deepen your learning. Oh, I know. And so, like, it's, it, I don't think it has that effect. Yeah. It's not even necessarily that, because some classes I've had just group us together, not necessarily for projects, just for the duration. Oh. I don't know if it's to... That's interesting. ...encourage attendance or to just have people that'll help you out if you miss a class. I, I genuinely do not understand the purpose of it. I could see it being useful, though. Yeah. I think part of it is the, you know work together and kind of discuss the subject. Yeah, sure. To help you build relationships within the course. And I like the idea because I think it would help, you know, retain information if you discuss the information you're learning and going over it. And like you were saying with the reading thing, yeah, yeah. getting different perspectives as well as mm-hmm. helping people who are struggling and getting help if you are struggling. Just like this whole myriad of possibilities. Yeah, there's a lot of benefits that could come out of it. And so every time I'm in a group, I always get really excited because I'm like, oh, this is this is what's going to happen. <laughs> okay. So much. And then immediately like, crash to the ground. Yeah, every time. It's crazy. <laughs> I feel like I always get put in the dumb group. And I'm like, come on. <laughs> come on. Yeah. And, you know, this actually brings me to something that I didn't think about when I was at university until right at the tail end. And then I was talking to somebody I knew and it, it just occurred to me. And essentially, like, I in high school and at the beginning of college didn't put down enough value into the importance of the quality of the students around me. <clears throat> So essentially, to skip all of the story, when I was in France, I knew somebody who went to kind of this university right beneath the Ivy League. He went to Richmond University. Uh It's this really high-level private university where everybody's rich and everybody's gone to prep schools and what have you, right? Right. And this person came from a public school and was on a sports scholarship. And so, you know, like, he's not part of that environment. Right. But he talked about how so much of what he learned was just at the lunch table in like the dorms and just talking to people about things out as you're walking between classes and as you're doing things. 
and that kind of intense academic, intense intellectual environment came from everyone that surrounded him. You know what uh-huh. I mean? Like he learned as much from the students as he did from the staff. Wow. And you don't get that if all the people you're around are really apathetic and dumb. Right. You know, like I remember at my university, there were classes. Like I, I remember so distinctly, I took this 8 a.m. accounting class. Mm-hmm. And this was a early level accounting class. So it's still students who are like 19 or what have you. Mm-hmm. We had maybe 150 people in the class. And every day I would show up, or it was twice a week. So every twice a week I would show up and there would be maybe 30 people there. Ah. And I would always forget how many people were in the class. And then an exam day would come and suddenly there would be 140 people, 150 (laughs) people. And it's like, you know, they just don't care. I mean, I I get it. Accounting is boring for a lot of people and it's 8 a.m. And they were all out partying the night before. And so, you know, sure. But... It's that sort of thing where how much are you actually gaining from talking to those people? Right. You're not gaining anything in terms of your academic development. Very true. And so like having good people in your group and having good people that you are around and converse with, that also really does shape your world. Right. It really does shape your ability to learn and develop. Yeah. yeah. No, it's funny that you mentioned that because I would audit some classes with an ex-girlfriend of mine when mm. she was attending university and she had some 100-level classes. So they were like these yeah. giant auditoriums it's like first year mega lectures yeah yeah you know i sat through some of the classes and just to, you know, be there mm. but it was fascinating to see because the classes were like 30 people 40 people max and they were all on their okay. laptops or their tablets and they weren't listening yeah. to the professor and they were on facebook instead of taking notes and i'm sure some of them were taking notes yeah but you know he was lecturing and then people would like raise their hand and they'd ask a question, but the question always came back to, oh, and when's the exam? Yeah, uh, of course. What day? God, I hated what those time? questions. And every question that was asked had something to do with an exam, hmm. what you could do at the exam, what wasn't or was allowed at the exam. Nobody had any questions whatsoever concerning the actual subject at hand. The actual material. Yeah. And I was yeah, just like, yeah. hmm fascinating fascinating it's demoralizing is what it is because those questions are what sharpens everyone in the class yeah because you as the one student are not going to come up with all of the great questions in the world like you need other people's perspectives asking different questions to find the weaknesses and flaws in what the teacher's saying and also just to explore areas that the professor perhaps forgot to discuss or didn't have time to discuss Mm -hmm. Getting that more robust learning, like you need people asking good questions and to be engaged and being surrounded by poor students, it really does degrade your education. Yeah. Um, and it is, it's sad how little people are dedicated at university. Like I find it somewhat astounding because I've seen this a lot in a lot of places mm-hmm. and considering how much people are paying. And, and this is, you know, one of the things that like, I don't think students appreciate mm-hmm. because most of them don't feel the payments. Like they don't feel the cost. Right. Because a lot of it's coming from a loan or it's coming from their parents. They've never really worked real jobs. They've never had money. Mm-hmm. So not having any money, <laughs> it isn't really a big thing. Right. You go from being a child to being a student with no money. And it's like, yeah, that's about the same. <laughs> and so I don't think they appreciate how much they're sacrificing to go to university Mm -hmm. like in terms of their time and their income and their life and letting it just slip by without even paying attention in class or going to class like i know so many people that didn't go to a lot of their classes and it's like that's insane you know what Mm -hmm. i mean like that that is a crazy thing to do and yeah it it always blew my mind it's pretty wild yeah that being said once you get to like 25 you're out and you start to think about things and actually engage your mind. A lot of the things we talked about hopefully will let you kick yourself into gear in terms of trying to figure out and learn all of the things that you neglected learning at university. So there you go. Yeah, that's what life is for. Yes, exactly. No, I actually really would like to see reforms in university to where you went to university kind of more on like a decade-long progression. Hmm. Like imagine university where you go for 10 years one day a week or you go every morning uh, and so i thought you go from like 9 a.m to 11 and then you go off to work that'd be pretty neat i think it'd be hard but something like that would be useful i think there should definitely be like an element to remind you that you're an adult like oh here's yeah, life. yeah 
this isn't super high school. This is this is adult life. Here's a sharp reminder. True. Well, and also, like, even just what we were talking about in terms of how you can only retain so much in a given day. Mm-hmm. If you stretch your learning over a long period of time, but you do it consistently a little bit each day, you're going to learn a lot more than if you pack it all in. Right. And if you think about so many things that affect society today, like technological change, people having to change careers, change industries all the time. Mm-hmm. If you get four years of education, five, six years later, a lot of what you learn is outdated. Mm-hmm. And so you either need to have learned all of that stuff in the job or you're not going to know it. So getting a longer education gives more time for things to reform and change and improve during the course of your education. It means that you'll stay updated. And it also gives you more flexibility to adjust your direction. Mm -hmm. Like now, if you're three years in and you want to change your direction, well, it's too late. You've already finished most of your degree. Like you're not going to start over. Right. It's even worse over here in Ireland and in France or the UK Mm -hmm. where they have three-year undergrads, but the entire course there is no like general education or what have you the entire course is in that subject matter and so like once you're in you're in and there's no changing wow yeah exactly so you are essentially deciding 18 what you're going to study and there's no there's no flexibility after that at all that's hardcore yeah it is that sounds like a really dangerous hit or miss like you're gonna have yeah it's not something i would endorse right you're gonna have dozens and dozens of students who pick something decided they hated it got a degree in it and now they're just like well i'm not gonna do this yeah sucks well and i think it fits an older form factor where people would generally do one thing in their life and you would just kind of decide when you were 18 often you would do what your parents did Mm -hmm. and that's what you would do whether you got like you wouldn't often get a degree back then 100 years ago what have you but you know when you go to become a steel worker or you go to become a cobbler or a whatever true true cabinet maker that makes sense it's true yeah like they used to be you just decide that and that's what you do forever and now it's that's not the case and so you know like that should not be really i don't think how we do things but it would be nice to after three years of study to be, be able to say you know i've learned so much in my working life all of this stuff in my school isn't really applicable i'm going to stop going to school or i've learned so much in my working life i don't really want to study this thing right I want to shift into something else. Mm. And it would force it to be much more tied into your practical working life. You would have all of these questions coming from your working life. Mm-hmm. Let's say you were studying social work. If while you were studying social work, you went out and worked in a, I don't know, some government agency that deals with social work, you would, as you're getting all of this training, start to see, well, like, is this stuff that I'm learning practical? Is this applicable? Like one of the things that I've found really impressive about the teacher training here in Ireland, like there are a a number of things that I'm not super on board with in terms of their educational system, but their teacher training every year that they study, they go in and work in an actual class with actual teachers Mm. for several weeks over the course of the year, right? And that is exactly what you want you want to be there be engaged developing the skills so that when you go back to your classes you can ask questions that relate to that stuff that you learned Uh and i think back to people that i knew that became teachers in the states and it's like you go through four years of your degree you graduate then you go into your teaching credential Uh and that's the only time after you've already finished all of your schooling when you actually get put into classes and things friend of mine got a teaching degree studied you know education mm-hmm. while they were in school they went and they observed classes and they taught you know maybe for like a week while like an actual mm. teacher supervised them what kind of degree was this i think like early childhood like elementary school level education sure i'm just trying to think this was probably integrated with the teaching credential i know that in california there are some primary school teaching degrees where the teacher credential is integrated with the undergrad degree so it doesn't take as long it might be possible because they i'm under the impression that they got their bachelor's and then they got the credential okay but even if that were the case it probably wasn't during the first two years of his degree right And, and this is my whole thing like from the first year they start going into classrooms here and that is just better oh definitely it gives more context to everything you're learning I know we've kind of wandered off a bit, but there you go. So just a little... How we learn. I, I wasn't very collected in my thinking about John's, <laughs> how to explain all of this. I mean, John's always going to have something to say about education. 
And it's true. while we were yeah. talking about learning, education came up. It's not his fault. Don't worry. <laughs> Thanks. So I know people probably are not super excited about me talking about demographics again. <sighs> well, I mean, yay! <laughs> Yes, that's the right response. That is the right no. response. It is one of the most important societal things we're dealing with in our time yeah, on this that's earth. Why they're so important. Uh, we're at an important, pivotal moment, Michael. Yeah. Do okay. or die. Kind of. <laughs> exactly. Literally, in a way. Literally, yes. Very much so. Okay, so we've talked before about how a number of countries are in long-term population. Decline, yeah. And that the entire world... Uh-huh if population stabilizes as we expect, will eventually face this sort of demographic crunch. Mm -hmm. And there's an aspect of this that somehow gets neglected that I think is really important, and that is how population growth ties to economic growth, okay? Mm -hmm. And this is just as a little preview why it's so important to think about things in a per capita way in a lot of instances. But I want to zero in on japan because japan is ground zero for all of this so japan's population has been declining for several years and it's pretty much just stabilized for the last decade or so and their economy has not grown in any kind of substantial way since the mid 1990s i don't think enough people connect those two dots so okay really quick question yeah go ahead so when people talk about their stagnant economy what do mm-hmm. they usually attribute it to if they don't see the connection between the population decrease? So there are a few things. One, a lot of people think that everything in Japan was super overvalued mm-hmm. at the time of their kind of property and uh, stock crisis in the 90s. A lot of people think that government policy, like when I read one of Greenspan's books, mm-hmm. he talked about Japan extensively and talked about how essentially because of their culture, they didn't want to shame people. And so they didn't force the kinds of reforms on some banks that were necessary. Mm -hmm. They didn't allow for widespread bankruptcies. Like if you look at the U.S. back in 2007, 2008, tons of banks went under, tons of financial institutions collapsed, Mm -hmm. and people essentially had to deal with the consequences. Like I know we bailed people out to try to stem the kind of societal collapse, but still there was enormous amount of pain felt by the financial industry. Okay. Whereas when you look at a place like Japan, when they hit their giant crisis in the 90s, they really tried to stop the damage to the financial institutions. And the same thing applies to a lesser extent to Europe in 2008, right? And that's why when you look at Europe from 2008, they've recovered so much more slowly. One of the reasons, other than the Greek crisis and the currency crisis and all that, Uh is that they didn't reform their banks. They didn't allow them to collapse as much as we did in the States. Uh, And so it was more painful for the States for a year or two, mm -hmm. but then we were able to recover much more quickly because we kind of got rid of a lot of the, it's kind of like cutting away the dead flesh. Like it's gone Okay. and now you can heal. And if you just leave the dead flesh there until it falls off, like it takes longer to get rid of it. Okay. I know that's a really disgusting and bad example, but no, there you go. it's a good example. It needs to be visceral so people feel it and remember <laughs> it. It's like rotting flesh, <laughs> okay. cut away. Keep your eyes open for that one. <laughs> uh, all right. Okay. So these are the reasons that some people were citing for the stagnation in the economy. I don't think that's the case. I mean, that's certainly not something that should be completely ignored because the stagnation did occur before the population started to decline. Like it... it began before that but if you think about it from a long-term perspective in terms of demographics instead of in terms of economics Mm -hmm. an economy's growth is essentially the production of every person right Mm -hmm. and if you have fewer people you produce less okay that's pretty straightforward right makes sense that's why a country like canada produces so much less than a country like the united states they have the same per capita wealth, pretty much. It's pretty close, Uh but they produce dramatically less because they have the population of California instead of the population of the US, right? Right. So that does make a lot of sense. Now, obviously, there's a lot of variance because the per person production varies a lot between countries. Uh 
But if you're looking at one country specifically, if you're looking at Japan specifically, mm-hmm. if their population stays the same size, right. they will gradually grow, slowly grow, because their productivity increases over time. Mm-hmm. Each person figures out how to produce more over time. Okay. And you still have companies behind bankruptcy and companies growing and innovation and all of that. So it will grow over time if the population is stagnant. But if population begins to actually decline and decline very rapidly, it becomes pretty much impossible to have rapid economic growth or any kind of economic growth. Like your economy will shrink. Okay. Okay. And this is something that I think we need to accept. Like this is reality. This is unavoidable. This is just part of nature. It's like gravity. Right. You can't get around it. And... A lot of people seem to be in denial about this. A lot of people have looked at Japan for the last few decades and just been like, they need to break out of this. And you see right now with the policies of Japan's current government mm-hmm. and Shinzo Abe, they have this incredibly loose monetary policy to try to stimulate the economy. They want to try to get inflation going. Right. They want to try to get economic growth going. And you can't. Mm-hmm. Like You cannot have fewer people working every year. Right. And have the economy growing. It's just, it's not really possible. It's funny. That doesn't make any sense. I read an article, and I can't remember for the life of me where, talking about Japan's stagnating economy. And mm. they did cite a lack of immigration as one of the reasons why it might be stagnant. Because yeah. they aren't getting yeah. in more people. It's something a lot of people point to. Right. Yeah. Which, you know, is obviously related to your population not growing True. or shrinking even. And mm. I think... That's fascinating that people talk about that, the lack of immigration, which, you know, lack of people, but make the connection between the population shrinking. Well, I, I, I mean, I do think people kind of do make that tangential connection, right? right? Like what, what you're talking about, that's one of the reasons why people talk about wanting to have immigration, mm-hmm. because there is among a lot of the economic community and just a lot of the world's thinkers generally, like uh, this idea that countries don't want to have their populations drop. Like, that's not a good thing. Right. And so you see, when people are talking about Germany, uh-huh. people are talking about, you know, their population's in decline or would be in decline if they had no immigration right. or would be at least close to it. And they need more workers. Like, this is how people frame it. They need more workers. Uh-huh. Now, that brings up a whole lot of questions. Like, do they need more workers? Or is their economy just going to shrink? And that's fine. And this is where I go to thinking about per capita production, uh-huh. right? Because for the people... It doesn't really matter the size of the economy. Like no one in Denmark is really angry because their economy is smaller than Germany. They're a smaller country. They have fewer people. So they have a smaller economy. That's fine. If every person in the society is really rich, it doesn't really matter that there aren't very many people. That's fair. But I mean, aren't there economies that pack other economies internationally where it might be important for them to keep the same gdp for whatever reason i don't know keep their like heft or whatever yeah Yeah, i mean there is kind of economic geopolitics right right, where countries are pushing up against each other and trying to like what you see with trump and his whole proposed trade war right like if we were costa rica and we tried to have a trade war with china china would just completely ignore it and be like sure have your trade war costa rica you're just gonna go pound sand right but the u.s because it has so much heft can push people around a little bit more uh-huh. if the u.s was not as big certainly it would lose some of its heft but when you're talking about population changes and demographic changes like no one's hitting a cliff you know what i mean right. like germany or japan declining in population japan's not going to be half the population in five years it's a slow gradual decline and so you just adjust to it over time i think but really going back to the initial point if the world's population is going to stabilize and then shrink Everyone's going to have to deal with this. Right. So you cannot have growing populations everywhere mm-hmm. if populations are shrinking everywhere. Like, that's just not possible. So we have to get used to this idea of shrinking economies. And we have to get used to this idea of deflation. Right. right? These are concepts that are all tied up. And I don't really want to go into all of the details of the economics of it. But I want to focus in on this mentality of avoiding decline. Mm-hmm. And I want to tie it to something really quick, which is declining cities, right? right? It's it's easier to see declining populations of cities. And I think we've talked about this a little bit, mm-hmm. right? With the Midwest. But exactly. Popular with yes. And there is a notable distinction in terms of how people are responding to the declining population of a given city, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you look at a place like Cleveland, mm-hmm. Cleveland it has had a declining population for a long time, but I believe 
maybe I'm getting the city wrong, but I think it was Cleveland. They just built a big stadium and they're trying to come up with a whole lot of things to make it more inviting to have a company there and more inviting to move there so that they can re-spur their population growth. Right. right. And in a previous era, that might have made sense. When everyone was growing, you might want to like get some of the growth to come to your city. Right. Sure. But when your city is having a declining population, when it has for a while and it looks like it will indefinitely, it becomes a really big gamble if you're trying to get people to move there because you're spending a whole lot of money that will get paid for if it's successful. But if it's not successful, your city is going to turn into Detroit where you've spent all of this money and when everybody moves away, there's nobody there to pay right. the debt that you've created, right? And so there's an alternative model, which you see a lot in East Germany. Uh-huh. East Germany has bled people for a long time to the richer Western half of the country after right. they unified and all of that. Uh-huh. And some of their cities in the East are declining rather rapidly. But what they're doing to handle it is shrinking the city. They're knocking down a lot of buildings, maintaining the central core. And that requires this acknowledgement that this city is going to shrink. There's no stopping that. There's no getting around it. That is the reality of the situation. Let's make that change in reality. Let's make sure that it is not painful right? or causes as little pain as possible. Whereas if you look at the disposition of a lot of Midwestern American cities, they're like, let's grow. Let's let's fix this and get back to growth. Uh-huh. And it's just not possible. Like you're not going to do that. Right. Detroit is never going to be as big as it was. Uh-huh. That's just never going to happen. And you have to accept that. And I think when you apply that to countries, it becomes the same kind of thing where when you see your population is going to be declining and your economy is going to be shrinking, you have to accept that and not do what Japan's doing right now and like firing everything you've got at trying to get back to growth. If your population is declining, you're not going to have growth. It's just not going to be a thing. Right. Okay. Yeah, I see. That makes sense. So Japan, just suck it up, deal with it. Midwest. You guys had a good run for a while it lasted. <laughs> well, it's not like they're going to die tomorrow. It's just adjusting to the new reality. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't think anybody in San Diego is super angry that San Diego is smaller than Los Angeles. It's smaller. It's just that's the nature and of it. better. I love San Diego. It is better. It's smaller and better. But because it's always been smaller, nobody cares. Right. It's the decline thing that people are bothered by. And I think if you just look at it and say, you know, my city's shrinking that's not a bad thing. It, it, it's this whole view that these things are bad, that like economic decline is bad. A shrinking economy is bad. That's not bad. It's just different. Right. As long as per person, wealth is not declining mm-hmm. and per person, everyone is getting more productive and richer. It's not bad for society. You hear that folks? It's all perspective. Yes, it very much is. We talk about it a lot. There was, there is one last wrinkle that makes this a little bit more complicated. All right. And, that is national monetary and fiscal policy. So it's na- it's spending, essentially, and national debt. Uh-huh. So this is where Japan becomes a little bit more difficult to deal with in this whole discussion. And that's because they have the largest national debt in the world as compared Oof. to their GDP. Okay. It's over 200%. I think it's over 250% at this point, And it's growing very rapidly. And it's not this huge problem because they have extremely low interest rates and because the debt is largely owned by Japanese people. So if it was foreign owned, it would be more dangerous because people might stop buying it. But it's unlikely that Japanese banks and Japanese people are going to stop buying it because they rely on it. Uh It funds all the pensions and things that they live on. But if the economy declines, what that ends up meaning is that taxes decline. And if taxes decline, then that means spending has to decline. But if too large of a portion of your country's taxes have to go to servicing debt, at a certain point, if you're always running deficits, Uh your debt will continue to move in one direction. So in order to make this transition to a shrinking economy and a shrinking population, debt really cannot be too large. Uh If the national debt is too large, then it becomes impossible to deal with. And this is, I think, the biggest or one of the biggest dangers of this kind of shift in terms of demographic outlook and our outlook about where our countries around the world are going. Uh A lot of places like in the United States right now are embracing a lot more debt to try to spur growth, right? Like we just cut taxes enormously in the United States. 
supposedly to improve economic growth. And the U.S. still has a rather quickly growing population with a lot of immigration and all of that. So, you know, potentially it could spur growth or at least some growth. Right. But at the point where your population is no longer growing, that strategy is not going to work. Mm -hmm. And if you're increasing your debt a lot, you're making it harder for that eventual. It's kind of like Cleveland, right? You're building a stadium, spending all of that money, getting a whole lot of debt. And if it doesn't result in growth, Mm -hmm. all you have is a lot more debt and it's hard to recover. Okay. It's hard to pay that debt down because now you don't have anybody to pay for it. Right. And you turn into Detroit and everyone just abandons ship and gets out. It's different with countries because obviously it's harder to move between countries. But that's where you run into a lot of problems. And that's why you see like with the Eurozone, with Greece and all of Greece's issues in 2011, all of those came down to national debt. Mm -hmm. If German and French banks hadn't lent a ton of money to the Greek government, nobody would have cared about Greece defaulting, Mm -hmm. but everybody got tied into it. And if you have everyone tied in and you have countries defaulting on their debts, you run into a whole lot of problems. Like you can't have the economy function well if governments are defaulting on their debts, because there are so many things that are now controlled and governed by governments. Uh And that's a real danger that Japan's going to have to see off before anybody else. Like they led the way on so many things over the last century and they're going to have to lead the way on figuring out their debt crisis because there's no easy solution to that side of it. Because I don't think they're going to allow a lot of immigration and their population is not going to start growing. And so you're going to have a shrinking economy. And if you have a shrinking economy and you have shrinking tax returns... And you have an aging population, which generally will mean that it's a more expensive population. You have to pay more for healthcare. You right. have to pay more for social services and all of that. How do you square all of that declining taxes with this enormous debt pile that you've got? This enormous debt pile that you have to pay off all the time. Uh-huh. How do you do that with less and less money every year? You know what right. I mean? Like that—that that is a very, very difficult task to deal with, and I am a bit concerned about that. Well, we'll see how it plays out over the next—I don't know. 80 years <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and, and i mean i don't think this needs to be as pessimistic as it kind of came out at the end like this decline is good for the world the world needs populations to stabilize and decline somewhat yeah this is not definitely a bad thing and it's not a bad thing for countries because as i said like if per capita growth continues and like individuals continue to get wealthier it's not necessarily a bad thing if there are a few million fewer people in your country right just means everyone has a little more money yeah everyone has a little more elbow space there's more land that people can own per person you know like it's good in a lot of ways to have populations decline somewhat Mm -hmm. it's just we have to handle it well and changing your mentality so that you view it as a positive thing rather than a problem that's the starting place and then figuring out the debt situation that's the follow-up we're gonna have to touch back on debt more because i have a lot more to talk about with that but i think that's probably enough for today you want to wrap it up yeah let's get out of (laughs) here okay you guys can of course find our show notes at subjectradio.com slash wwots slash zero one eight yeah we're almost to 20 episodes almost man it's exciting crazy we're gonna have to do something special for 20 i think yeah i'm inclined to agree so what else can the people do john feel free to reach out to us you can send us an email at hello at subjectradio.com or reach out to us on twitter uh and you know give us your feedback we're excited to hear back from anybody yeah uh, always i always enjoy it and we love it if you share our show with other people. Yeah, yeah. please. Yeah. yeah, yeah, share it. Share it with other people. Oh, and a quick shout out because I want to shout it out. We have a surprising number of people listening in Japan, which surprises me because neither of us have been to Japan. Wait, I had a layover in Japan. <laughs> okay, well, well done, Mike. Yeah. But like... Choto! <laughs> I don't think either of us really know anybody there. No, no but, we don't. But, you know... Good luck now, Japanese people, for listening to the show. We appreciate it. Arigato. I mean, really, it's probably foreigners, like Americans living in Japan. Thanks. You know, still. (laughs) Whether you're Japanese or not. I took like a year of Japanese. Mm. Can't really speak it, but I can do minor communications. That's something. Yeah. (laughs) You could order in a restaurant. That's good enough, you know? Yeah. 
yeah so thanks you guys yeah. you guys make up something like a third of the audience it's it's yeah. surprising all the time yeah. i'm surprised every time i look at our stats and see oh look they're still downloading yeah. our stuff and okay you guys should super share it spread us out all through japan yeah that's really all mike cares yeah. about he's like screw all the listeners in america and europe oh. get those japanese listeners up i didn't say screw them i just know where I my priorities are with japan <laughs> all right yeah 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 of course you gotta have priorities yeah. Sorry, Japanese people, for always being so depressing about your country. Yeah. But, you know, you guys get to lead the way for us. All right. I will talk to you next week, Mike. All right. Talk to you then. All right, man. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Okay. How you feel? Not bad. Yeah. Pretty good. episode kind of and i feel like i did a pretty good job yeah well and and this is one of those examples of putting some constraints right like because i got up so late you had a limited time and we put this little constraint it forced us to get right to it forced us to do stuff you know it's that whole constraint thing that we talked about a couple episodes ago we should sneak that in there just our own realization that when we put constraints here's a little bit of proof our power hour episode (laughs) i'll probably tag that in there at the end of the episode 